Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is special episode 1F, The Merchants of Magda. This week, I was supposed to post a podcast on the lost religion of India. This is not that podcast. And that's because, well, it's all got a little bit heavy these last few weeks. We had an episode on caste, then we had a debate about caste, then we had an episode on religion. And I just want to take a week off the heavy stuff and talk about something that really thrills me to the core. And that is the merchants and the guilds in ancient India. Our story starts in the middle of North India, where the great river Ganga joins up with the Yamuna. The modern city of Allahabad is there. If you ever find yourself in Allahabad, head south out of the city, walk for a few kilometres until you've left the city behind, you're in amongst the shrubs and the trees. And there, by the riverbank, you will find a mound of earth rising up above uh, above you. And if you climb up that mountain, you'll find inside the ruins of a fortified Mauryan town. The town was so insignificant to the Mauryans that we don't even know its name, but it's still very impressive. As you'd be going up the hill, you'd first have come to a circular bastion, and then you'd come to the walls, compacted earth three and a half metres thick, and the gate, and behind the gate a street nine metres wide, quite luxurious, running straight through the town lined on either side by shops and behind the shops houses and one house is of particular interest to us it's come to be called the house of the guild and in most ways it's like the other houses in the Morian town the foundations thick pounded clay overlaid with a hard core of broken brick and pottery and the walls are made of fired bricks not too different to the sort of bricks the same sort of size as you see in modern buildings the world over. On the ground floor, there was a central rectangular courtyard, and 12 rooms were dotted off it of various different sizes. There was probably a second floor too, at least on the southeast side, where the walls are thicker, as if it's supporting a second story. And the roof roof was made of overlapping tiles. So the house of the guild is kind of like the other houses in town, all of which are based around a courtyard in this way. But the House of the Guild is different to the other houses in town for two reasons, and these are the reasons that make it of interest to us today. First is the house that's near the gate, and second, inside the house, they found a seal. And on the seal were the words Sahijitie Nigamasha. And this refers to a merchant guild, a Nigama. So this house might just possibly have been the offices of the local merchants' guilds. This week we're taking a look at those guilds, we're taking a look at the lives of the, of, of the craftspeople, the people in the craft guilds, and also of the people in the merchant guilds. Let's get started. Dear listener, After almost a full season of podcasts on ancient India, it's no secret to you that the craftsmen in ancient India banded together. It just made sense. If you're a craftsman in ancient India, you've got to protect yourself from economic attack, 
from other craftsmen taking your work. You've got to protect yourself from political attack, from the government taking over, pushing you around. And you've got to protect yourself from physical attack. And you can do all of these things by banding together. So we've heard in earlier podcasts about entire villages or towns devoted to a single craft. We've heard of a village of potters and another of carvers. And people in these villages might have been arranged along something like guild lines. But it's in the large cities that the guilds really came into their own. According to Buddhist sources, there are supposed to have been 16 craft guilds in the city. In actual fact, though, the number was often more. There were guilds of carvers, guilds of washermen, guilds of weavers, of potters, the ivory workers guild, the perfumers guild, possibly even a courtesan's guild, a caravan driver's guild, and a soldier's guild, and more. Occasionally a city might have two guilds of the same craft, so two weavers guilds. In actual fact, this seems to have been pretty rare. And guilds had a special role in the large cities. There were some law books which laid out how you should construct a city, and in these law books the guilds were given special locations. The most important prominent one we discussed is the Artashastra. The Artashastra was a, a book of statecraft written by Cortilia, who was the first Mauryan emperor's advisor. And Cortilia says that you should put the guilds in the southern corners of the city. And sensibly enough, he says, that guilds dealing with fire should be gathered together so that if a fire breaks out, you can deal with it. So the blacksmiths and potters are going to live together in a corner of the city. Other law books put the place where you're supposed to put guilds somewhere else in the city, but they all agree that guilds have their own dedicated space. This is all probably a bit of planner's fantasy, a bit of neatness of mind. More like the lovely calendar you plan for yourself at the beginning of the year than the messy reality you live through. But at least we know this, that guilds were important enough to be given a large chunk of the city in the plan. So guilds were prominent features of city life. As you're going around an ancient Indian city, you would see the banners of guilds carrying their emblem, marking out their place at festivals or marking out their place at the theatre or just put up elsewhere in the city as adverts. Guilds, then, are important in the city. And for that reason, becoming a member of the guild is a tremendously important thing for a craftsman to do. In fact, some of the law books say that you just can't go into a town unless you are a member of that guild, if you're a member of a guild from elsewhere. So, if you're a craftsman and you want to become a member of the local guild, you need to apply. And there are three ways you can get in, basically. First, you could be recommended by a respectable person, presumably someone already in the guild. Second, you could sign a written agreement, a contract, that you would obey the rules of the guild. But what if you couldn't read and you had no respectable friends? Well, there was a third method. You take an image of the god that you worship, you put it in a bath of water, you take out the image, and then you drink the water, and then you wait for two weeks. And if any calamity strikes you, if you get ill or some financial setback or some terrible thing happens in your family, then you are unworthy. No guild membership for you. On the other hand, if two weeks after you've drunk the water, nothing really bad happens, good luck, you're in. 
once you're inside the guild itself, things are surprisingly democratic. As a member of the guild, you are a partner. You pay a subscription to the guild, most likely, but in return you have a share of the profits of the guild. At least the profits made for made by working for the king in the state and from banking income and fines and so forth. And the profits of the guild are surprisingly equally spread. There is some hierarchy in the guild. There's a guild master. Um, there are other people who have gone through the training. There are apprentices. But according to some law books, the guild master only gets four times as much of the profits as the untrained apprentice. Something modern companies would do well to learn from, where the CEO will get thousands of times what the trainee does. So as a member of the guild, you get a healthy share of the profits. But as a member of the guild, you also have a share of the risk. If someone in the guild can't meet a project, the guild's got to find someone else. So you suppose you're a carver and you're part of a carver's guild and someone else in the guild has said, yeah, I'm going to go and carve all these, uh, all these doors for you. And then they fail to do it. It's up to you, the guild members, to find someone else to do it. You have one week to get the work done. That's better than craftsmen who aren't in a guild, who would be up against the wall straight away. But after that... If you can't get it done within one week, then the guild gets fined. And you, as a member of the guild, get fined too. You get to pay, you have to pay your portion of the fine, even though it wasn't your fault. There's no limited liability here. Thank you very much. So inside the guild, things are pretty democratic, and that extends to the way decisions are made in the guild. In fact, the word... Um, for guild was sometimes used both to cover craft guilds and also to cover democratic republics that we've mentioned in earlier podcasts. People like the Lechavis, um, those small proto-democratic, uh, militarily invincible people. So the guild really is working on the lines of a republic or the lines of, of a, of a proto-democracy. And it has, much like a republic or a proto-democracy, it has a general assembly. And the hundred or a thousand or so members of the guild would all gather and join in in the General Assembly. They come together for meetings in the General Assembly. These often appear to have been in the pillared halls of temples. And they come together to vote on strategy for the guild and on new rules that they might pass. So you have the General Assembly. And in the Mauryan era, the other thing that you have is a president. The president of the guild would typically be of noble birth. And they might be president for the entirety of their life. It might be lifelong and handed down to their children. The president had power to reprimand the members of the guild for breaking the rules. And breaking the rules of the guild was a very serious thing indeed. It is, according to the great epic, the Mahabharata, an unexpungible sin. The rules differed considerably from guild to guild. But there are some standard rules. If you're an apprentice, then you can't run away. Apprentices are bound by contract to serve under their masters for the, the duration of that contract. Even if they've learned everything they're going to learn, they have to work for the master and the master gets to keep the product. You're not allowed to run away. Obviously, you're not allowed to embezzle things from the guild. And you might also be disallowed from taking on contracts without the guild's approval. 
if you get found guilty by the president of violating the guild's rules, then some pretty bad stuff to, can happen to you. You might just get fined, but you might have all of your possessions taken away, and you might be excommunicated, expelled from the guild, which is a pretty terrible thing, given how powerful the guilds are. The guilds were powerhouses of ancient India, trusted by people, feared by kings. Yes, feared. Cortilia, the advisor to the Morin emperor we mentioned, was tremendously worried about guilds. If new land became available, he didn't want the guilds to be settling on them. He didn't want the guilds to have any more power than they had. And it wasn't just Cortilia. It was part of the structure of the government. According to the Greek ambassador, Megasthenes, in each city there were six committees, and one of these committees was basically devoting their attention to the guilds. Government was tremendously worried about the power that guilds had. And this doesn't seem to be because of anything that actually happened. We've got no record of any guild even trying to be involved in a palace coup, trying to take political power. Instead, the fear seems to be that guilds are very economically powerful and also very stable. Guilds consisted of 500, maybe 1,000 people, devoted and loyal to the guild, and they were able to control the economics of the city. More importantly, perhaps, the guilds were pretty permanent. They might on occasion move from one city to another, but the guilds didn't disappear. Kings would die and be replaced. Empires would crumble, but the guilds remained. Some guild members would be replaced by others, but they would be bound by the same rules, the same traditions, and the same agreements. If you made a contract with a guild, it was for all time. They kept their promise till sun and moon and earth endure. That was the phrase. And this meant that the general public trusted the guilds in a way that they might not trust the king. Because the king might be gone in a ten years' time, but the guild would definitely still be there. And that's one of the reasons that the guild started to work almost as banks. They would loan money at interest. First they started loaning money to merchants, and then to the public at large. Cortilia decided that he could exploit the guilds because of this fact. A king, says Cortilia, can keep the guilds down and earn some money by sending a spy dressed as a merchant to go and borrow from the guilds, go off them with money, and then pretend to have been robbed. Typical sneaky stuff from the master of sneakiness, Cotillia. Actually, though, when it came down to it, even kings trusted the guild. If a king wanted to ensure their legacy, they made a donation to maybe a group of Brahmins or whatever, or maybe some Jain or Buddhist monks or what have you. Kings might have told their governments to pay out money to the Brahmins uh, or whoever they were giving the donation to. But in fact, that's not what kings did. Kings knew, as well as the common people, that governments fall and that treasuries run out. Instead, if a king wanted to secure their legacy, what they did is they gave a lump sum of money to the local guild. And in return, the guild would promise to look after the Brahmins or whoever for all of time. The guild would promise to give them food every week or um, to give them some of the guild's produce or to give them medicine or whatever. 
even when the king had died, even when the whole entire kingdom had crumbled, the guild would still be there helping out those Brahmins and the king's legacy would be secure. When even kings trust guilds more than they trust government, it's no wonder that Cortelia felt intimidated. Our guild, though, the one we started with based in the house of the guild in that fortified Mauryan settlement, was probably a bit different. The guilds we've been talking about were Shreni, craft guilds. But our guild was a Nigama, a merchant guild. Uh, well, I'm covering over a great big confusion about terminology here. Guilds get called all sorts of things, and in fact almost all the things they get called are also words that are used for other things too. So Shreni is a term which is also applied to democratic proto-republics. Things like the, the Chavis. And Nigama is a term that's also used to refer to towns. And it's just not clear exactly what the distinction between Shreni and Nigama is, but I'm making a guess an educated guest backed by historians, that Shreni are craft guilds and Nigama are merchant guilds. If that guess is correct, then our guild is a merchant guild, not a craft guild. And the merchant guilds were even more powerful than the craft guilds. The craft guilds were things that terrified kings, but the Nigama, the merchant guilds, had power over the craft guilds. In later years, the Nigama would be called in to moderate and to take care of the craft guilds, the Shreni. They even had judicial power over the guilds, so that if two presidents of two craft guilds were bickering, then you'd call in the local Nigama, the merchant guilds, to sort them out. The head of the Nigama would have been one of the seti. The seti are merchants, bankers, some sort of combination between the two. Merchant bankers. The heads of the craft guilds, the presidents we mentioned before, were quite important, but the setis were absolutely vital to the kingdom. And we know this from the stories. In the great epic, the Ramayana, the setis were supposed to be on hand to help with King Rama's coronation. They were supposed to be there sprinkling water. And Rama's wife, Sita, noticed that they weren't there, noticed that they weren't fully behind the coronation. And that was a cause of serious concern. So the setis were people who were so powerful that if they weren't there in the coronation ceremony, then that was something to worry about. Another story, another source, the Buddhist chronicles. According to the Buddhist chronicles, the two great kings of Buddha's time are Persendi and Bimbisara. We've heard a bit about both of them. Bimbisara is the chap we started this podcast series with. Well, according to one Buddhist chronicle, one day, Persendi looks around his territory and he sees that he has no great seti in his lands, no great merchant banker. So he sends word to Bimbisara. And the word he sends is, look, you've got five of these great setis, five of these great uh, merchant bankers in your lands. Please, please send us someone to our kingdom. Send us one of your five seti to our kingdom. Well, Bimbisara, after thinking about it for a while, reluctantly agrees. Interestingly, he doesn't simply order one of the five setis to go. Instead, he manages to persuade one of the setis to go. 
The seti has a name. I can't remember what it is right now. Um, but this seti, he does go to uh, King Persendi's land. He leaves Bimisara's land and goes to King Persendi's land. But he actually refuses to settle in the foreign king's city. Instead, he says, look, let me settle outside of the city in a nice place in the country uh, and have some peace and quiet. And King Persendi agrees. He says, you're sure, settle wherever you want. Just just come, just come. I'll, I'll build the whole uh, house in the countryside for you. So the setis are not only people who have some sort of semi-official role. They're supposed to be there for coronations and for other things. But they're tremendously powerful people. And a sensible king like Bimbisara keeps them close and consults with them and pays them a lot of respect. In a later source, they're even given the title of, a, of an official minister. They're called a Mahamatra. Setis are important people to have in your land. The Setis could come from all walks of life. And we hear tales in later years of even a slave becoming a Seti. Plenty of low-born people becoming Setis. In practice, though, that seems to have been the exception. Seti almost seems to be in a post that was hereditary in practice. You'd pass on uh, your, your wealth and your position as a seti to your son. And so there's not quite as much social mobility as those stories would have you believe. In fact, the Buddhist texts have a charming story about the son of a certain seti. This son led such a pampered life that hair grew on the soles of his feet. Well, King Bimbisara heard about this and he wanted to see for himself. So the Seti's son was carried to the capital, where the king inspected his feet. The king probably had a good chuckle at this and then said, OK, that's interesting, but now, you know, you start leaving your life right. Go off and see this chap, the Buddha, who's living nearby on Vulture's Peak. So the young man went off uh, to uh, go and see the Buddha. And he became a Buddhist monk, and a keen one. One day, some time later on, the Seti's son was, was uh, kind of waiting at home, and the Buddha was coming to visit. And the son started to pace around the room, but his feet were so soft from that upbringing, from that, that luxurious upbringing, that as he began to pace the room, his feet began to bleed, so that by the time Buddha arrived, he opened the door and said, this place looks like a slaughterhouse for oxen. There's blood all over the floor. What's going on? Well, the Buddha and the Seti's son sat down and they had some talks about earnestness. The Buddha kind of says, redirect your passions towards being good. And the young man becomes an arhat. And the Buddha allows monks to wear shoes with one lining. Not two linings, not more linings, just one lining. Um, classic stuff neither too much luxury nor too much austerity, classic middle way Buddhist stuff. It's a nice story about a man with hairs on the soles of his feet. But where were we? Oh yes, we were in our merchant guild house in that small settlement where the two great rivers meet. Let's get involved with some trade. So we are a merchant working out of this guild in this small settlement. And we're going to do some merchanting, some trading. First, we need to decide our route. There are two major inland routes. There's the east-west route, which is called the Tarapat. This runs from the Bay of Bengal all the way over in the east, up the banks of the Ganges, and then up and out of India towards Afghanistan. 
There are actually numerous branches in the road connecting all the major cities and areas of production along the way, and there are a couple of routes. Don't get the idea this is just one path. So we've got the east-west route, and we've also got the north-south route, the Dakshimapata. This runs from the central Gangetic Plain south and west, ultimately reaching the west coast. These routes wouldn't have been paved roads. In fact, even in the cities, roads were seldom paved. They're mostly just mud. And these roads would have been just kind of clearings cut through the jungle, with regular wells and sheds for them to sleep in. There were loads of other routes too. It wasn't just this major east-west route and the major north-south route. There, in fact, were routes going as far south as Myanmar, Burma. They went up the Brahmaputra, round, and then all the way down. Um, and there were other routes going to South India, but let's not get too adventurous just yet. So we've got the two major inland routes to choose from. We could also choose to travel by sea. And when I say travel by sea, I really mean travel by coast. The ships of the time don't seem to have been up to crossing oceans in any major way, but they could skirt up and down the coast in a pretty nippy way. If they got too far out to sea, the ships were in danger of being lost and ruined. Just to make sure that they didn't go too far out to sea, crewmen kept crows on board. And if the crew happened to lose sight of land, what happened was they released a crow uh, from its little hutch, and the crow flew up, and they hoped saw which direction the land was in, and they hoped flew in the direction of land. Hmm. All that sounds a bit chancy. I think our merchant is going to not risk the seed voyage, they're going to stick to land. Mind you, land has got its own dangers. There are robbers, especially in the forest, but also elsewhere on the road. In fact, there are whole villages of robbers out there, villages which just specialise and live off robbery, robbing merchants. Fortunately, though, we, our merchant, is in a merchant guild. So we can form a caravan with the other merchants going along the same route. And the caravans that were formed were sometimes tremendously big. There are caravans with hundreds of carts in them, mentioned all over the literature of the time. And we probably also would have used armed caravan guards. These would have been people probably employed by the guild full-time. And we say, look, we're going off to make this great uh, uh, voyage. Give us some of the armed caravan guards, and they would follow us and keep us safe. Okay, so we've assembled our caravan of 100 caravans, sorry, of 100 carts, and we've got the armed guards. Let's set off from our small fortified town. First, we need to pick up some goods to trade. Well, not far to the east of our little settlement lies Varanasi, Benares. And in the countryside surrounding Varanasi, a lot of cotton is grown. You think of cotton plantations, you think of little shrubs, and people working in them in horrible conditions. But in ancient India, cotton wasn't grown on shrubs. Instead, it was grown on trees in orchards. Right? Trees are actually a less efficient way of growing cotton because they don't flower so often. Right? You don't get the cotton so often. It's not a yearly crop. But it's a, maybe a nicer way to grow cotton. So the cotton uh, is taken in from the orchards surrounding Varanasi and taken into the city itself. And there it was spun. Spinning was mostly done by downtrodden women. Widowers, old slaves, people who couldn't otherwise get a job. 
and after the cotton was spun, it was woven into fine garments, mostly by men in the Weaver's Guild. So we're going to take our caravan off to the east towards Varanasi, and we're going to buy a bunch of cotton garments, we're going to load it up. Now, according to the law books, at this point, we're going to be paying a very heavy tax. In fact, according to the Artashastra, there's a fixed rate of profit we can make on these garments, fixed by the government at a fairly low rate. In fact, the most we could probably hope for is about one-tenth of our investment, a 10% profit. That's what the law books say. But the reality seems to have been a long way from the law books. The taxes aren't nearly as high as people like Cortilia would like them to be. And merchants like us are going to be making a lot more than 10% profit. There are even rumours that we can bribe our way out of paying any tax whatsoever. So we can expect to make a tidy profit on this run if we buy enough of the cotton garments. Maybe two or three times what we invested if the route is risky. So let's buy, let's fill up all the wagons with these cotton garments and with other things from Varanasi. And let's head out again to go and trade them. We're going to head west again, aiming for that famous north-south route, the Dakshimapata. So we head out east past our old settlement, and then we meet up with that route and we start heading south. And once we're on that route, the caravan will have to cross a desert. Crossing a desert is a perilous thing, it's hot, it's confusing. So what we're going to do when we reach the edge of the desert is wait. We'll stop, we'll stop the caravan, and we'll wait for night time. And we will hire a desert pilot. And what's going to happen is we're going to set off when night begins. And the desert pilot's going to climb up into one of our carts and lie down, keeping their eyes on the stars. And with their eyes on the stars, they're going to guide us through the desert. Go a little bit left here, go a little bit right here, so that we don't get lost. We made it through the desert all right. After many weeks' journey, we come to our destination, Ujjain. Compared to our little fortified town, Ujjain is a huge city. Ujjain is a tremendously important city in the Mauryan Empire. Remember, it's the place that Ashoka was once viceroy before he became emperor. It's an important centre, maybe the second most important viceroy after Taxila. The walls of Ujjain are 12 metres high. And before you even get to them, there's a moat 45 metres across and over 6 metres deep. And inside Ujjain, there's about a square kilometre of city and around 40,000 people. But actually, you know what? If we're an experienced merchant, we're not going to be wide-eyed with wonder. Because even Ujjain is a small city by Mauryan standards. A fourth grader. There's actually a grading of Mauryan cities that modern historians have used. There are at least eight bigger cities, probably quite a few more. Okay, so that's the life of a merchant over one journey. It's a comparatively safe and relatively short journey, but we ought to be able to be making a tidy profit on it. More adventurous journeys are certainly possible if that stuff bores you. We can go down to the kingdoms in the south for valuable pearls. We might take the coast. We might go to Kalinga and then come through the valley, through the river Krishna Valley. Or, uh, and then pick up some valuable pearls and then go back up and sell them at Pataliputra. 
Or we might take the east-west road up to Afghanistan to fetch lapis lazuli and bring it back. There are, there are bits of lapis lazuli from Afghanistan all the way over in Bengal in the extreme east. And we might even go and fetch jade from the south of Myanmar, from the south of Burma, taking that long route um, down to Bengal, then following the Brahmaputra up and round to the foothills of the Himalayas, and then down through the jungles to Myanmar to pick up the jade. All of these routes would have been somewhat of an adventure, and even that is just a drop in the ocean for merchants. In the following centuries, the people who come after our merchant will carry on a brisk trade with Rome. They will host Chinese merchants. They will see these places with their own eyes. But that's a story for a later podcast. Let's have a quick note about the relationship between guilds and caste in our period. Guilds are old. In fact, they might be as old as the Harappan civilization, And they're certainly there in the time of the Buddha. But in Mauryan India, they're developing into more powerful things. And in Mauryan India, the guilds and the caste system, which is also developing, cross-cut somewhat. They don't line up nicely. It's not that everyone in a guild is a member of a certain caste, and vice versa. In fact, in the cities, the guilds have been fairly flexible on caste. So we've got plenty of stories in the Mauryan era and even before that of people from higher varnas taking low-class jobs and very often those jobs would have been in guilds. So you might have weavers but having quite a few Brahmins in the weaver guild. The merchant guilds would have been even more flexible on caste than the craft guilds. In the fact, the very word used to describe merchant guild, Naigama, refers both to a merchant guild and also to a group of people who don't follow the Vedic tradition. And that ambiguity might be very revealing because some of the law books ban sea travel altogether. Because travelling in general makes it very difficult to observe some of the Brahminical requirements of purity. So you can imagine these, these group of merchants, these guilds of merchants, to be vaguely unorthodox chaps. Still, most of the people in most of the guilds would have been Shudra, especially the craft guilds. Shudra is that lowest of the four Varnas. So in the guilds we have Shudra people will, coming together and wielding something like a real political power. Some people see the guilds as encouraging the caste system, as castes emerging out of guilds, but for my money, for my guess, in the Moria, at least, the guilds were the opposite. They pulled against the caste system. They gave you another way of looking at the world. Every week we read something from the primary sources, and this week it's a real gem. It's a story from the Jataka stories, There's the stories of Buddha's earlier births, and it's from the Suchi Jataki. It goes something like this. Once upon a time, when Brahmadatta was king in Benares, that's Varanasi, the town that we visited earlier, the Bodhisattva was born in the kingdom of Kashi, in a smith's family. And when he grew up, he became excellent in the craft. His parents were poor. Not far from their village was another smith's village of a thousand homes. The principal smith of the thousand 
was a favourite of the king, rich and of great substance. And his daughter was exceedingly beautiful, like to a nymph of heaven, with all the auspicious marks of a lady of the land. People came from the villages round to have razors, axes, ploughshares and goads made, and generally saw that maiden. And when they went back to their own villages, they praised her beauty in the places where men sit and elsewhere. The Bodhisattva, being attracted merely by hearing of her thought, I will make her my wife. So, he took the iron of the best kind, and he made one delicate strong needle, which peered dice and floated on water. Then he made a sheath for it of the same kind, and pierced the die with the sheath, in the same way he made seven sheaths. How he made them is not to be told, for such work prospers through the greatest of the Bodhisattva's knowledge. Then he put the needle in a tube, and placing it in a case, he went to that village and asked for the street where the headsmith's house was. Then standing at the door, he said, Who will buy for money from my hand a needle of this kind? And he described the needle. And so standing by the headsmith's house, he spoke the first stanza. Quickly threaded, smooth and straight, polished with emery, sharp of point and delicate, needles who will buy? After this, he praised the needle again and spoke the second stanza. Quickly threaded, strong and straight, rounded properly. Iron they will penetrate, needles who will buy. At that moment, the maiden was fanning her father with a palm leaf as he lay on the little bed to allay discomfort after his early meal. And hearing the bodhisattva's sweet voice, as if she had been sickened by a fresh lump of meat and had the discomfort extinguished by a thousand pots of water, she said... Who is this hawking needles with sweet voice in a village of smiths? For what business has he come? I'll find out. So laying down the palm fan, she went out and spoke with him outside, standing in the veranda. The purpose of the Bodhisattva's prospers, it was for her sake he had come to that village. She speaking with him said, Young man, dwellers in all the kingdom come to this village for needles and the like. It is in folly that you wish to sell needles in a village of smiths. Though you declare the praise of your needle all day, no one will take it from your hand. If you wish to get a price, go to another village. And then she spoke two stanzas. Our hooks are sold both up and down. Men know our needles well. We all are smiths in this good town. Needles, who can sell? In ironwork we have renown. In weapons we excel. We are smiths all in this good town. Needles, who can sell? But the bodhisattva, hearing her words, said... Lady, you say this not knowing and in ignorance. And then the Bodhisattva spoke two stanzas. Though all are smiths in this good town, yet skill can needles sell, for masters in the craft will own a first-rate article. Lady, if your father, if once your father know this needle made by me, on me your hand he would bestow and all his property. Well, the headsmith, hearing all their talk, called his daughter over and asked, Who's that you're talking to? Father, a man selling needles. Then call him here. She went and called him. The Bodhisattva saluted the headsmith and stood by. The headsmith asked, Of what village of you? I'm of such and such a village and son of such and such a smith. Why have you come here? To sell needles. Hmm. Come, let us see your needle. The Bodhisattva, wishing to declare his qualities among them all, said, is not a thing seen in the midst of all better than one thing seen by each singly? Not quite right, friend. So they gathered all the smiths together, and in, the midst, the, in their midst the bodhisattva said, 
Sir, take the needle. Master, have an anvil brought and a bronze dish full of water. This was done. The Buddhasatta then took the needle tube from the wrapper and gave it to them. The headsmith, taking it, asked, Is this the needle? No, it's not the needle, that's the sheath. He examined, um, but couldn't see the end or the tip of it. The Bodhisattva, taking it from the headsmith, drew off the sheath and with his nail, showed it to the people. This is the needle, the Bodhisattva said. This is the sheath. And he put the needle in the master's hand and the sheath at his feet. Again, when the master said, This is the needle, I suppose, he answered. No, that's actually the sheath too. And then he struck it off again with his nail. And one by one, he took the six sheaves off the nail in succession and laid them at the headsmith's feet, saying, here is the needle, and laid it on his hand. The thousand smiths snapped their fingers in delight, and the waving of cloths began. Then the headsmith asked, friend, what is the strength of this needle? Master, have this anvil raised up by a strong man, and a water vessel set under the anvil. Then strike the needle straight into the anvil. Had he done, had he done this, sorry, he had done this and struck the needle by pointing it into the anvil. The needle pierced into the anvil, laying across the surface of the water, not moving a hair's breadth up or down. All the smiths said, "We have never heard all this time, even by rumor, that there are such smiths as this." So they snapped their fingers and waved their cloths. The headsmith called his daughter in the midst of the assembly, saying, "This maiden is a suitable match for you," and he poured water in them and gave her away. And afterwards, when the headsmith died, the Bodhisattva became headsmith in that village. Beautiful story. Well, that's it for this week. The next episode in two weeks' time will be the special episode on the lost religion of ancient India, the one I promised you this week. In fact, that's going to be the last of the episodes of season one of the podcast, because two weeks after that, at Christmas, we're going to start with season two. Can't wait. If you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity, that's the Snail Situ Memorial Fund, Details are on the website and I think also in the description of each show. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon.